Hi, hi, it's Panda. A quick note before we get into the episode. You stumbled upon one of our early episodes. We're so proud of them, but can understand that the quality isn't up to standards for most people. We hadn't really hit our stride yet, and we were still just getting to know one another. If you find us irritating or unlistenable, maybe start from one of our Dead House Gates episodes. We do get better, we learn to edit better, get better equipment, and just learn how to podcast better as we grow. We appreciate you taking the time to give us a listen. And now, on to the episode. Now these ashes have grown cold, we open the old book. These oil-stained pages recount the tales of the fallen. A frayed empire, words without warmth. The hearth has ebbed. Its gleam and life's sparks are but memories against dimming eyes. What cast my mind, what hew my thoughts as I open the book of the fallen, and breathe deep the scent of history. Listen then to these words carried on that breath. These tales are the tales of us all, again yet again. We are history relived, and that is all. Without end, that is all. Hello, and welcome to the Legendarium Green Team Malazan series. I'm Huron Fan, and I am joined by fellow Malazan veteran Ashaman. Hello, everybody. I am also joined by newcomer Yasna Zaboy. Hello. Who has read the first three books of Malazan. And finally, we have Befuddled Panda. Hi. Who is reading Malazan for the first time. Okay, so uh, this is our first episode. Are you guys ready? Oh, I'm so stoked. (laughs) I'm nervous, but I'm ready. (laughs) Yeah, I'm nervous as well. But This is our first episode, so we're still kind of figuring out the kinks and... So if you please, if you have any criticism or uh, helpful advice, let us know on the Discord. Today, we are going to cover the first seven chapters of Gardens of the Moon. Our plan for the series is to read chapters one through seven for the first episode. That's this one. Discuss those chapters. Read chapters eight through 16 and discuss those chapters. And finally, read the rest of the book and do a full book discussion. After each section, Ashaman and I will be recording a series spoiler discussion and will release that at the same time as the final episode. During the final episode, we will review the book, but until then, it's just discussion. All right, so shall we <laughs> shall we do the prologue first? Yeah, yeah sounds good it. to me. All right, so the prologue, setting the scene. Uh, Ganos Perrin, a merchant son, is in Malaz City, and the city is burning, and he meets an old grizzled vet, and the old grizzled vet said, don't be a soldier. And he meets the empress, and that's it. So what did you guys think of the prologue? It's a very good way to set the tone for the series, in my opinion, um, as well as setting up some of the major players, at least in the early books. Um, I really like everybody who's introduced. Uh, I like how they are introduced. Uh, Shout out to my girl, Lazine, who is one of my favorite characters. (laughs) What did you think of the, uh, the prologue? So I think um, like it was confusing. Yes. Cause it doesn't, there's no like backstory or anything. You're, you're literally just like basically walking into a conversation that's happening. Um, And they're talking about uh, different locations and the a little bit about the history of like what's happening on, with the emperor and then all of a sudden there's another character that's introduced but i thought it was actually really cool because once you get into the first chapter you start to connect some of the dots a little bit um and 
I, I will just leave it at that because I think there's a lot more to be said for the, the chapters that follow. Yes, no, what'd you think? Um, I really liked it. Uh, I, I, I liked, um, uh, I didn't appreciate it so much when I first read it like seven years ago because I was coming straight out of Wheel of Time and he, I, I thought that I was being introduced to my fish out of water main character with uh, Ganoes and then you know, when that turned out not to be the case and that's not how the story is at all. I was very confused, but uh, now that I know what to expect going back through it, I really enjoyed it. And I liked the conversations between uh, Perrin and the commander and uh, the commander and uh, Surly. <clears throat> um, hmm. I'm not, I'm not, the, the, the prologue for me is fine. I, I think it serves what it wants to do and it introduces our main characters, but other than that, I think, that, that's it. That's fine. Shall we go on to chapter one? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah. Chapter... I mean, yeah, it's pretty short. Yeah. Chapter um, just one. A, just Sorry, a point of clarification. Um, we're just spoiling everything, right? There's no non-spoiler part to this episode. Uh, for chapters one through eight, yes. No, uh, all spoilers. One through seven. Okay. One through seven, yeah. One until eight. <laughs> Got it. All right, so chapter one, uh, there's a fisher girl, and she talks to an old lady, and the old lady yells at her, and the old lady dies, and then Amanas and Cotillion come, and then <laughs> a lot of stuff happens. What, how, how did you guys... It, it ends with uh, Perrin meeting his sister and going to the capital and meeting the Empress. So what did you guys think? Ash, you want to start? Yeah. Uh, again, this, is, uh, this, this sets up the rest of the book in introducing and developing our characters Peron is older he's he has refused the commander's advice uh, to not become a soldier he has used his noble connections to become a lieutenant at a very young age uh, I like this again I I'm just gonna say I like all the chapters I should stop saying I like it um, but you get you get a good introduction of Erickson's humor as well. There are some quite funny scenes, in my opinion, uh, especially when Peron exits the Imperial Warren uh, right into the throne room and the Empress is just kind of sitting there and she's like, hey, what's <laughs> up? And he's like, oh, hey, what's up, uh, Lizzie? <laughs> Long time no see. Um, but yeah, it, it sets up both the darkness and the humor of the series quite well, in my opinion. Why does the Imperial Warren open into the throne room? It's an excellent question. Who knows? <laughs> just Where else is it going to open? You know? it's just, you can just have people popping in right where she's having an audience at any time. How about the stables? The stables seem nice. I mean, you could put it, eh, whatever. Like right outside the front door? I don't know. It is very uh, odd. But I, 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 I wonder. Go, go ahead. I was going to say, I wonder if it's because it's the Imperial Warren. So it's very. Um, what's it called surveyed and it's also um not like just anybody could take it so it's almost like you would have you're an expected guest if you're coming through there so i don't know it could be it i, I think that maybe they just had no other choice because it seems like a terrible place for a, a door <laughs> <laughs> uh so uh panda what were your impressions of the first chapter uh so um a lot has happened and it's um you know you have a you have a full-on massacre that just you just basically read and it happens um you may not 
well, as I was reading it, I didn't quite understand that it was a massacre until a little later in the chapter. Um, and then there's just the uh, the mystery that occurs. One thing that I noticed is um, when a character is introduced, it's not usually by their name, right? It's not like, and this is so-and-so, and this is what they do, and blah, 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 right? Like, it's very much the character comes, something happens, and then you get little bits and pieces of detail, and then you'll get a name sometimes. Not always, but uh, sometimes you'll get the name in that same section. Yeah, usually at the end. Um, so I can see why people say it's confusing if you're used to more linear storytelling. Um, but for me, it was fun. It's like little puzzles um, throughout the chapter to try to piece together the details. Um, and then I would ask you guys in the DMs, like, hey, did I get this right? <laughs> so, yeah. You got most of it right. Yeah, well, it's more fun than, you know, crawling through lots of uh, blood and guts and bones and stuff, right? It's very visceral. Yeah, it's it's a very organic way of introducing characters, in my opinion. Uh, you really get the sense that the world isn't catering to you, the reader. It is just there, and you get to be an observer, which is something I really like in the series. You see it in the world building, you see it in the characterization, you see it everywhere. It's something Erickson firmly believes, that the reader shouldn't be, as he says, spoon-fed. Mm. Uh, Yasna, what do you think? Of of chapter one, yes. Or okay, uh, I really liked the conversation between uh, uh, like Riga and uh, Fisher Girl. Sorry, the Fisher Girl, I guess, because she's not sorry yeah. yet. Uh, between um, those two, I like that. Like, uh, and I it I didn't realize the first time I read this because of on audio, it's so hard to follow a lot of this stuff. And you're, I think I listened gonna, to that chapter. We're gonna be saying audio. that a lot, right? I didn't realize uh, this the first time. <laughs> but it's very clear, you know, and like you don't need any extra information from later on to read it, that before uh, Amanas, that's his name, right? And uh, and Cotillion show up, the um that she that Riga is in the Fisher Girl. Because there's like these this one little paragraph where they establish or maybe it's two paragraphs where they establish it where like she says something in the old lady voice and then like, she's kind of confused about it. And she says something, the Fisher girl says something and then it flips back, I think twice before Amanas shows up. So, mm. you know, and so it like very right there is like, Oh, she's possessed by the spirit of this old lady. And it's established so quickly that, you know, you blink and you miss it. And then and it's next, easy to miss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think sorry spits too, which the Riga was doing a lot. Like once she's possessed, she spits, and you're like, "Oh, well, that's the tell." Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, and she also says "prod and pull." Mm -hmm. uh, oh. Just a quick shout out. I love the idea of an assassin named Sorry. It's just, <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> so uh, I want to talk a little bit about Amanas and Cotillion. So they're introduced, and I was amazed at how clear their voices were. Just with the, they were only in the chapter for a few pages, but. At least for me, so who's read before, it's absolutely clear, even without him telling us whose names is who, which which character is which, just based on uh, how they speak. And I really like that. But uh, how inept are they? Am I right? 
Yeah, their what plan immediately gets found out. <laughs> yeah, we need, oh, to yeah. Kill, we need to kill everybody here so they don't know what we're doing. And then Ganos and Lauren come to like, oh, yeah, so I think gods are involved and they're trying to steal <laughs> these two people. <laughs> it's just like one after the other. I don't, I don't know if that's supposed to be humorous, but I think it's pretty funny. I think it's I think it's just a commentary on how adept Lauren is at her job. She's just she's just so good at what she does. Yeah, she's very capable. Mm -hmm. um, also, Topper, Topper, uh, did Topper make any uh, impression on any of you? <laughs> yeah, um, he didn't so much when I first read the series, but now that uh, now they've gone through it once, it's it's funny to see him beginning like this. He tries to be all friendly and stuff to Peron and. You know, he just kind of gets stonewalled and he starts being just kind of a bit surly about it, like a petulant child. Um, it's it's interesting to see uh, Topper like this. I, I really like the introduction between Topper and uh, Ganos. But uh, if that's it, do you have anything else to say before we move into chapter two? I think with the first few chapters in particular, when... The reader is getting introduced to a whole host of characters, right? Um, I think some people might feel a bit overwhelmed when they're reading it because it's just one after another and you're not quite sure how much attention you're supposed to be paying, um, what details you should keep track of. Um, and what I would say is that just be okay with needing to go back and reread sections. And I think that's something that, Ash, you definitely um, mentioned previously. And I did find myself going back to just like, so this detail here, you know, after reading a few chapters later, like coming back, is that what this means? <laughs> and it's, it's very satisfying when, you know, as a reader, you're able to put those dots together. Yeah, because yeah. you're like, oh, I think I, I read this part before. Also, by the way, anyone who's reading and who wants to do that easily, uh, there's a, a, a web page on the internet called Search of the Fallen. You could just type uh, what novel you want to search and what chapter and uh, up to that point so you don't get anything you haven't already read. So like, if you want to search for Acronis, you just type in Acronis and it tells you all the places where it's located. It's really helpful. Okay. I did not know that. <sighs> Sorry, I should have told you that before. It's very it's helpful. Okay. I've used I've used it a lot. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, one more thing I want to say about this chapter. So much happens. Yeah. So I I, I I gave a really quick synopsis at the beginning, but I, I've been writing summaries for each chapter, and it took 372 pages to write it concisely, in my opinion, to show that everything that happened, and that uh, that's going to be pretty common in this book. Wait, your 372 summary? words? You mean? Right. Yeah. Okay. I was like, your summary is 327 pages. <laughs> oh, sorry, I say pages. I'm sorry, 372 <laughs> words. <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a brief summary. <laughs> all right. So chapter two, uh, chapter two. This is where all the big big explosions happen. So we uh, we're introduced to Tattersail. There's a big battle, and then we get a flashback to before the battle, and we meet the bridge burners, and Hairlock, and Hairlock gets. Uh, turned into a puppet. Mm -hmm. Yep. So what'd you think? Uh, Yasuna, you want to start first? Yeah, so one thing that's interesting about this chapter is it's like one of the only times where the uh, storytelling is not... And I think it's the only time in this, at least the part of the book that we've read so far, if not the whole book, where the storytelling is not chronological. And you like start at the end and then you start getting these flashbacks from Tattersail to everything that happened. And um, I was just 
curious what why you guys think he chose to tell this story out of order uh in stet and not the rest none of the rest of it's told that way i've never considered it that's a, yeah that's an excellent it, i don't know what do you think <laughs> dramatic effect i think he <clears throat> wanted to do something very specific with this chapter and he actually he actually has an excellent essay on uh, on ex- exactly writing this this scene in particular on his website, I believe. Um, and yeah, it, it was, in my opinion, a very deliberate choice to show the desolation of war as the very first thing you see when you see war in this series. It's not glorious. It's not anything to be looking... You, you don't look forward to it. You just see the aftermath first and what it has cost everybody. And Erickson really wants us to keep that in mind as we go through the series, what exactly war looks like and is. I think there's also something really powerful in that, um, you know, Callot, Kalot, Tattersail's lover. Callot. He he dies, so you can just call him Tattersail's lover. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so like, you know, he's gonna die, right? Like, that's what you get at the, uh, the first part of the chapter. And then you reading about you about the backstory of him and Tattersail, and it just makes it, I think, at least for me, more powerful because you're like, oh, I'm getting attached to this character. I'm getting to know this character, but I know that this character is gonna die. So it's um, it's a it's a bit of a stylistic choice, but I think it's an effective one. It uh, yeah, it's a good. I don't know, mystery puller too. He's like, hey, this happens, but how does it happen? You know? Right. Yeah, actually a lot of well not a lot of, but some some thrillers, they do that, right? They start with so and so dies and then the whole book is about how it happens. Um and those I think when done well are really, really good reads. So uh how about uh Ash, what did you think of chapter two? I love the Battle of Pale so much. It's probably my favorite event that happens in this book. Uh, there's just, and, and it's it's one of the more memorable moments in the series for me. It's just so interesting to me how many layers goes into what goes on here. And we start, in, in chapter two, we start peeling back a few of those layers. We, we, get, we get the raw story of what happened from someone's point of view, but it's incomplete and we're left wondering, what exactly happened here, even though we just witnessed it? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of one of the central questions of this book, at least, is like, what exactly happened? Why did things happen the way they did? And for me, it, it, it's just so fun uh, and it, an interesting puzzle trying to figure out what happened along with the characters. Uh, Panda, what do you think? Um, I think some of the things that you start to see in chapter two is Erickson's use of which POV he shows you. And I think to Ash's point, like we don't get a complete story because we really only see things from Tattersail's point of view. And that adds the the mystery. Um, and I think also she, for me, is a bit more likable and relatable as a character. So I really like that we get her point of view from this and not somebody else. Like if we got Hairlock's point of view for all of it, I don't think I would like it as much. 
I like Tadasa a lot more than Ganos. <laughs> yeah. She's yeah, she's such an interesting character. Just like an she's she's been alive for two hundred years, we find out. She's a she's a deeply scarred and traumatized mage who is uh, surprisingly really powerful as well which speaks to the kind of people that are populating this world. They're not infall- infallible as they seem. They're not... and no- Nothing is as calculated as they would like to be. Um, these are all deeply emotional and damaged people. <laughs> and the older you get, the more damaged you become. The I'm more you witness. At, I'm surprised at how caring she is, despite her power and despite uh, you know the people around her being... You know, I mean, Tayshran is not shown in a favorable light, at least from Tatarcell's eyes. Uh, Hairlock is crazy. Uh, the others die. I end up, like so many people die in this. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I love Pale. I think in any other book, this would probably be like the end of the story, or like the gigantic battle happens. And I think it's such a great opening. Uh, I love. We we get introduced to the Bridge Burners. Who uh, spoilers? Bridge Burners are pretty important, and most of them are dead, which is I think uh, pretty. Mm, that would that hit me hard. Like, really? even though we haven't really gotten to know them, right? Um, and most of them are just numbers. It's like 14,000. It was some ridiculous number of how many there were. And then only 30, 35 were left at the end of the battle. Like, for me personally, um, I am not, I have a fear of being crushed to death uh, or buried alive. And so just like me, like imagining what that death would have been like, and especially when they were, they, people were told not to go rescue them. So they didn't yeah, even really have get, that hope. You really get the sense of betrayal that yeah. comes from it. Yeah. Right. So that part really hit me. Um, even though I don't even know the names and backstories of all of those bridge burners, you know? Apparently they had some because they... <laughs> Erickson said that they were real characters that you just decided to kill off. Um, oh. I like I like Whiskey Jack's. It says a lot about Whiskey Jack with the way he responds to it. At least we, we, the way that Whiskey Jack's feeling at the time. And someone says, I'm sure they were good men's the one you lost. He said, good at dying. Oh my god, I, fr- I didn't even catch that on like the fourth time through. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and at the end of the chapter, so uh, Herlock's puppet and we get our first deck of dragons reading. So what did you think of the deck of dragons? Uh, Let's start with Panda. So I think the deck is a very clever device, a very clever writing device. Um, And part of this is, I guess I should preface that I'm reading this, yes, for the story, yes, for, you know, finding out what happens, but I'm also really appreciative of the writing, um, the intention and the, the deck, like, it is confusing because you don't know what it's meant for. You don't know what these cards that are being drawn, like, what, they're mean, what they mean, how you're supposed to read them. All you're getting is what Tattersail is telling you. And it was very confusing, but I trusted, I trusted the author and the process. And so I was just like, I don't understand what this is, but I trust that things will make sense later. So that was my approach. <laughs> Yasna? Yeah, uh, it was really cool. And for the little slice of Malazan that, I, or Malazan that I've read so far, uh, it, uh, this reading and uh, the ones that 
we get in this first book are my favorite so far of like the first three books. And they, I, I don't know. I, I like it as a storytelling device. There's a lot of tension in Tattersail's reading. Uh, and, um, uh, and on rereads, you can see like a lot of, if not all of what each card means, you know? So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Gosh, it's what, a, what, oh, sorry. I just wanted to say it's a good way to add foreshadowing. One hundred percent. I love prophecies in books, and I, because I, I think usually it's a great device by the author to uh, change expectations. You know, it's like, well, this is going to happen, but the wording is always, you know, kind of opaque, right? And you're mm -hmm. like, well, how is it going to happen? Uh, Ash, what, what did you think the first time you saw the deck of dragons? First time I saw the deck of dragons, I immediately was like, this is an excellent as you say, an excellent way to for do, do foreshadowing. Uh, there is so much I love about the deck of dragons. It's it's a puzzle. It's um, it sets up major players in the book that you're supposed to be watching out for. Um, and at the same time, it doesn't quote unquote spoil things the way that prophecies have sometimes have the tendency to do because it's not really foretelling anything. It's just setting up who is like who is here kind of what their alignments are stuff like that um and it's also just very fun as you guys have said to go back later and be like oh this is what that meant and you know line all the pieces up and see oh my god this is it's it's a beautiful tapestry well done erickson <laughs> yeah uh the deck of dragons readings are some of my favorite scenes in the series and there's some really cool ones later all right so so just for uh Reference the th two cards that uh, Tattersail picked up on our first reading were the Knight of Dark. Any guesses to who that is? Perrin. Okay. Maybe. And the second card was Opon, which I believe is the first time that uh, Opon is mentioned. Yes. All right. So the shall twins. we get on to yeah the twins gestures of chance? Is is Opon the name of the card, or just the name of the god that happens to match that card in this reading? I don't know. Opon is the name of the twins of luck. Basically, yeah. um, so it's it's both the name of the card and of the gods. They're a pair. Yeah. yeah usually, it's part of a house, though, right? Uh, the twins are, I believe, some of the unaligned cards. Uh, one one of the unaligned cards. So they're not part of a house. They're just part. They're just you know uh, a random god, I think. Yeah. So there are still parts of the deck of dragons that I do not understand, like especially the unaligned cards. <laughs> If you go to the if you go to the aligned cards, you're like, okay, well, this is this and this and this and this and this. But when you get to the unaligned cards, I'm just like, I have no idea what this means. <laughs> All right, so ch chapter three. What happens in chapter three? So uh, Topper visits Ganos in a boat. Um, Tatter still talks to Belladan, who is grieving Nightchill, and she puts a spell on his bag. Um, the bridge burners try to convince Whiskey Jack that the uh, Lacine is trying to kill them. Uh, there's another deck of dragons reading. And finally, uh, Perrin gets knifed in the back <laughs> and dies. So uh, let's start. Dead dies in quotes. Ash, what did you think of chapter three? Chapter three. This chapter is less flashy and exciting than chapters one and two, but it still serves its purpose. It's basically moving characters around, getting them where they need to be for the main plot of the book to actually start. Um, so first time reading through, I was very surprised that Peron was just killed like that. <laughs> um, although 
like of course he comes back right but it, it's still he arrives and then immediately dies which is uh it's it's good preparation for the rest of the series things can happen very quickly um after pages and pages of characters talking about what might happen and what they're going to do uh, i think it's i think it's again good setup for the rest of the book um although not necessarily the most exciting chapter in and of itself uh was did anyone else think that was kind of funny which yeah. part <laughs> the, the, the part where uh parent gets killed uh, yeah he shows up it's like ever everyone's like oh it'd kind of be a shame if he, this, this one dies because he's sort of a decent guy and then immediately just no, no, no. They, they were taking bets on when he was going to get killed that's because too. so many officers true. and the bridge burners were getting killed and they're like well everyone's gonna think you're gonna die here and then he he literally dies like i don't know a few pages after they were talking about it and i just thought that was really unexpected <laughs> thought the bets were funny um not to say like you know betting on when a man is going to die is funny it's more of the way that it was executed the the dialogue but i didn't find his death itself funny i was like oh so this is how it's going to happen and it's i guess part of it is were you were you expecting it to be um the people that did end up killing him like did you expect him to die in chapter three? No. I wasn't expecting him to actually die in chapter three. I thought it was one of those things where, you know, you keep saying like, oh, he's going to die, he's going to die, but he doesn't actually. Mm. Um, so most, what most books would do, right? I think so. And so it was a bit of a surprise that it does happen. I was like, wait, am I reading this correctly? Is he actually dying right now? <laughs> um but then I also wasn't necessarily expecting it to be not one of the soldiers that killed him. Mm. Uh, any thoughts from chapter three, Yasta? Um, well, having read this after, um, for the first time, having read this scene uh, after Wheel of Time, I, de- I never believed that he was dead uh, in this scene because uh, nobody ever nobody ever dies unless there's Balefire or Brain Matter in Wheel of Time. <laughs> so I was just like, no. Nah. That, that, he's he's fine. It, this is gonna work out. <laughs> but uh, um, what what else happened in chapter three? The second the second reading of the deck was better than the than the first one, right? Didn't that she go farther? Tasharon Tasharon made yeah, the, her do the reading. Yeah, the first one was with Hairlock, right? And she like stopped mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And yeah, he's like, I want to see more, and she stopped. She's like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, and and she was pretty satisfied that she had to stop, uh, or supposedly had to stop, whatever. Um, yeah, the second reading, the cards were Orb, uh, Virgin of High House Death, Assassin of High House Shadow, and Opon, and the Crown. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, and I don't know if I know where what what those cards are besides Opon. Uh, <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I, exactly. I, I, have some, I have some ideas, but yeah. Um, what what else happened in this chapter besides Perrin dying? He uh he met all the bridge burners and they were like they were gambling. Uh, I mean I thought I thought like a lot of the opening scenes with like some of the bridge burners we hadn't met before were were kind of funny and interesting. How he meets Picker and then Hedge. <laughs> okay, so one of my favorite scenes so far um in in this reading that um one of my favorite scenes so far is how he meets the bridge burners, how Perrin meets the bridge burners, because um, as I've told you guys that I really enjoy the camaraderie that happens um, 
both in the black company and in here and it's the humor that's there the banter that occurs is it's one of my favorite things yeah to read I, I, I like the characters a lot in the Bridge Brothers, uh, even the smaller ones. So everybody, I won't say anything else. <laughs> did we did we get the scene with um, was the scene with uh, Whiskey Jack, Dujack, and Fiddler on the rooftop in this uh, chapter? Fiddler on the roof, I think, is another chapter. Now okay. that you said that, Fiddler <laughs> on the roof, was that intentional of him? Maybe, of I, Erickson. <laughs> I can't imagine. Oh my goodness. Being... Yeah. Well, okay. I'm just going to interject here. Basically, everything that Erickson puts in front of me, I'm just like questioning it left and right. Like, is it is it as straightforward as I think it is? Or is there a double meaning? Or is it something else? Like the the death of par- parent, I I was surprised, but I was also like He's a very important character, I think. So I don't think he's going to be dead. And there are gods involved. So I think something's going to happen. Um, but yeah, anyway. Uh, that Fiddler on the Roof happens in the next chapter. So I, I want to talk about in this chapter um, the continuation of the storyline of the imperial politics. So the bridge runners are pissed because they think Lucene's after them. And uh, then Tattersail thinks that Tatian killed all the other mages. And uh, what did you think of this uh, storyline? It's like an onion, man. It has so many layers to it. <laughs> I love the imperial politics, um, especially the stuff that is happening off screen, of which There's there so is happening off screen. Yeah, yeah, of which there's a lot. So you have to you have to really work to put the pieces together for this kind of stuff. And I, I just I just want to uh, draw attention to a small bit of characterization that. Erickson does for sorry the Fisher Girl. Um, so the card of the Virgin of a High House death that that is sorry. Um, uh, and when when she flips the card, Tattersail uh, remarks that the cloth around her eyes is wet because she's presumably been crying. Uh, I just think that's an excellent way Erickson uses to just just a little bit there to tug at our heartstrings for this poor possessed girl. Um, so is it is the deck treating Sari as a separate entity from Cotillion right now? Then because isn't Cotillion of High House Shadow? Cotillion is of High House Shadow. <laughs> so the, I think so that the, might be a spoiler past the first part, past chapters one and seven. Uh, well, I, is it because don't don't Cotillion and Amanus kind of do that in the first chapter or no? It's not explicitly said what oh. happened until chapter nine. Oof. Oh, that they possess her? That who possesses her. I see. Okay. Tyrion says he's going to do it. I mean, I guess it's technically not explicit, but like. It, it's, it, I, think it's, I think it's fair. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, s- sorry. Haha. <laughs> uh, if I. If I like went over that line, but I, but I, by since we've already said it, I do. I am curious. Is are are you saying then, Ash, that the deck has a card for both two different entities that are in the same body right now? It's the deck is tricky. Um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, So the version of Ohio's death is an interesting. Okay, I can't. I can't say. I can't say. I can't say. Sorry. The 
I, I'm going to tread on the side of safety here, um, but basically things are never really clear-cut when it comes to the deck of dragons. I believe that. Yeah, there, there are oh, no really firm Someone could be part of two lines. different houses. <laughs> yeah. Ash but, is uh, saying, yeah, keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry is definitely the virgin of high house death, and uh, Quotillion is the high house shadow. We will say that. Mm -hmm. All right, so chapter four. Um, Tattersall meets with Whis Whiskey Jack, Quickbin, and Callum and Fiddler. Um, Perrin is at Hood's Gate. We meet Hood's servant, and the gods of Ulpon make a little deal with him. And he comes back, and the deal is uh, someone close to him will die. Um, Shadowthorn comes to finish the job, but Perrin, you know, says, "Hey, you know, you don't have to kill me. I could don't kill me." And, and Shadowthorn says, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> and then Ansi finds the body. Uh, there's rain. They get Perrin inside the compound. Uh, Fiddler on the roof with uh, Whiskey Jack and Dujack. They talk about their plan to overtake Darugistan. And finally, the Hounds of Shadow are following after Hairlock, and they follow him into Tattersail's room, where I think they are dispatched by an unconscious. Right? Does that happen? Um, basically, Tattersail gets overwhelmed by the Hound. Hairlock comes in and tries to capture it for his own purposes, and they think Peron stabs it. Yeah, uh, Peron's yeah. basically out, but then his sword sort of acts on its own. He wakes so, up. Kind of. Yeah, it's just like just it's the right like time. He's kind of in like a fugue state. Sword. Yeah. Also, I want to say that at the end of chapter three, Amana says that someone has entered his warren. Did you guys ca catch that and figure that it was a tatter sale? I thought it was Hairlock. I, I, yeah, I, Hairlock. I thought it was Hairlock too. It's not tatter sale. Absolutely not tatter sale. I just misspoke. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what do you think of chapter four? Ash. Uh, chapter four. So this introduces a, another big part of the series. Uh, so the Hounds of Shadow thus far have just been unstoppable killing machines. Um, and then Peron wakes up and dispatches one almost accidentally <laughs> with his sword, um, which, to be fair, is it's not quite a normal sword, but it, it, it's it's an important theme of the series that mortals while frail are also they they're, they're not they're not helpless they can be rather dangerous i also really like the scene with first with the twins and the mysterious figure at Hood, hood's gate they bargain for peron's life um you you get the you got kind of a tragic setup where someone close to peron is going to die and you don't know who it's just it's just kind of like laid up there uh, Can and... I speculate? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I we were introduced briefly, very briefly, to Peron's sister, and then we also find out he has another sister and a brother, I believe. No brother. Uh, just there's two no sisters. brother. Oh, yeah. just two sisters. Okay, so I I made up the brother. Um, and there's one sister who really like likes him, like maybe looks up to him. I think her name is Fen. Something, Felison. Felison. So I speculate it's her, but I have no like basis really other than you... <laughs> gut. You'll have to read and okay. find out. Yes. Uh, just concluding. Uh, I also really like the uh, Peron. Really surprises me here uh, with his 
political acumen when he talks to uh, Shadow Throne because he's an instant from being killed again, uh, which would just suck. Uh, but he manages to basically convince him that he is more valuable to Shadow Throne alive than dead, which, you know, it again, like the, the wheelings and dealings of this world are complicated, but also everyone is no one has any idea of what's going on basically and everyone's trying to figure out and it's just a it's just like a big pile of mess and i love it big pile of tangled strings yes <laughs> which thread are you gonna pull i i i was most interested my first time through it uh figuring out the uh what what happened with the imperial politics and why is there so much backstepping but i won't say anything more than that uh panda what'd you think of chapter four so the part where, um, you know, uh, Perrin wakes up and he's in, like, this other world, basically. Um, and he's, like, outside. Yeah, he's outside of the Gate of Death, I guess. Um, first of Hood, all, the God imagery. Sorry? Yes. Uh, the, yeah. the God of Death is Hood, and so, yeah, he's at Hood's Gate. Hood's Gate. So, first of all, the description of that gate is creepy as, yes. <laughs> um, and the introduction the the very first time we actually see opon opon how do you opon 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 that's probably a better pronunciation um that was very interesting and i mean the jokes that they were making part of it is my mind was probably in the gutter they were talking about his sword but you could totally take it as other anyway i think that was, I think that was intentional <laughs> okay good so it's not just me I picked um, up on it too. <laughs> um, and just seeing the interaction between the the brother and the sister, and it just remind me reminded me more of like you know Greek myths, uh, maybe a bit of Shakespearean um, influence there, and yeah, I just I really enjoyed that. Uh, so Hood, like I said, is the god of death. Uh, some of the best curses in the Malazan universe will involve Hood. So you'll see. Mm. Keep keep an eye out. Yes, Hood's you breath. Think Hood's breath. That comes up a lot. So uh, I'm going to have to reread that now and look for uh, the dirty jokes that Panda noticed because uh, there's really just that, one. <laughs> I know that this. Uh, well, I know that this with this first book, Erickson was trying to set up all the fantasy tropes and uh, subvert them, and uh, you know, big swords on uh, fantasy covers as references to phalluses are. Uh, a big trope in uh, in in uh, fantasy, so I kind of want to go back and see and see what I can find there that I didn't notice before. But what I did think was funny, because uh, it was surface level, so I didn't have to think about it to figure it out, was uh, the way that Opon subconsciously decided how Hood's uh, servant would look when he came to them, and he was like mm. pissed about it because it was like unimaginative, <laughs> and he couldn't like laugh because he he was like a skeleton or something. So he was just like this dry cackle when he wanted like a full throated laugh, and I thought that was like just like a a nice, brilliant bit of humor that was like you know dry, and that's a pun, but uh, y yeah, it it was great, uh, and and just it. It made the world feel a lot weirder than it did mm -hmm. up to that point. Uh, though the demons we didn't talk about that were just like casually mentioned in the Siege of Pale also made it seem weird because they were just like, and there's demons, and like we're not going to investigate that at all, which which, mm -hmm. which was great. Uh, but uh, what 
God, the Hood's Gate scene is so overwhelming that none of us have really talked about the other stuff that happened in the chapter. <laughs> uh, and I'm having trouble even thinking of, of it, even though we talked about it before we started on this Hood's Gate stuff. Um, uh, what, what, what else happened here? Oh, the, the, the attack of the Hound of Shadow uh, on Tattersail's rooms and like the, um, the Hound like just like demolishing like a bunch of soldiers before it came into Tattersail's room chasing after Hairlock. Yeah, that, that was a really cool scene. Um, and you start to really get a sense of like how kind of psychopathic Hairlock is uh, yeah. in that scene. And um, I think that's all I've got for now. I should have, I should have been taking notes while you write in your summary. Hairlock <laughs> is a, a great character and I love how unhinged he is. Yep. Uh, I really like this character because you get a feel for how the rest of, uh, is it the second army? Yes. Yes. Okay. I, I, you get a feel for how much the second army respects their bridge runners and especially Kalam. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I like the, the dialogue he has. He's like, okay, so some people are coming through. You need to turn the other eye. And you're like, oh, you're Kalam. Yeah, I'll do whatever you want. And then those two, you get a little bit of a characterization between those two soldiers. And uh, I was actually really, really relieved. I think they, they didn't die, right? The people who... Uh, they switched with died, correct? I think that is the case. Yeah, I was a little relieved by that. But uh, so we're about to move to Dereshistan. So, do we have any other thoughts for the first four chapters? I I uh, do have a couple of things, um, if that's okay. So there is the scene that we keep seeing Fiddler on the roof. Um, we don't really talk about it. <laughs> so there is one piece that um, Whiskey Jack basically it's his internal uh, monologue he says whatever was happening thousands of leagues away was being played out here such was empire and it always would be no matter the place or the people they were all instruments blind to the hands shaping them and to me that's like it was a very powerful moment because whether you want to talk about real world or in the past or whatever that those are very powerful things to think about how people far away making decisions and the people that are actually feeling the effects of those decisions, right? Like they are, they seem so powerless. Um, and they, if they don't do what they're told, right, they may not live. Um, anyway, yes, Kieran? Uh I think that's the, the largest theme of this book. Mm -hmm. It's a theme in the series in general. But uh, it's people finding agency in a system where their agency is taken away from them. Mm -hmm. And like it, through almost every single character, you see uh, what options they are given and what they can do. And for example, sorry, she, she's literally taken over. She has no agency. Right. They're Fisher Girl, I should say. Uh, Ganos, at the beginning of the story, he wants to become a soldier, but because he did that, he's just a puppet of the Empire. He becomes So he originally was going to have a cushy job somewhere, but he meets Lauren and she changes that. Uh, I won't say anything about Lauren, but uh, even characters later on the book, they are just gears in the Empire, and that's Whiskey Jack is always thinking about that. And so they're pawns of the gods, and they're pawns of the Empire, and they're, they're pawns of the choices that other people make. Mm -hmm. And I think Erickson wants to explore, you know, when you're in that situation, what can you do? Um, not to take this down a philosophical <laughs> notch, but <laughs> since we're talking about the Fiddler on the Roof scene, um, I liked Whiskey Jack's conversation with Fiddler about how they both used to uh, work with Stone, and Whiskey Jack became a soldier and Fiddler became an engineer, which implies that one of them... Uh, 
and I don't think I've had any official confirmation on this from anywhere past this point. So it, this is pure speculation. One of them might, because sappers use explosives, so that kills a lot of people, and Whiskey Jack's, like, commanded armies of an imperial force. National militarism and, uh, and traditional warfare that doesn't have to do with engineering, because he, like, throws his sword down in the puddle, and Whiskey Jack complains about it, and he's like, I never use it anyway, and I hate the thing, and I'll get it in a minute. And then as soon as Dujek gets up on the roof, He's like, is that your sword <laughs> in a puddle? And like, you know, it's like, so it kind of like draws out like quite a bit about the characters with like a very small amount of to ado, you know. If it's a lot, a small amount of words. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah I will just, I will just say this uh, to your first point. Erickson does very few things by accident here. Like he mm-hmm. is a very deliberate writer. Uh, I won't say whether you're right or not as to your assumptions, but it's definitely deliberate that he put those two things very close together. Right. I mean, I figure, but mm-hmm. uh, Erickson works a lot with juxtaposition, especially scene by scene. Uh, almost every mm-hmm. scene he writes will have something uh, linked with the previous and the next scene. Sorry, Ben. I, w- oh, I was just saying that, um, <clears throat> well, I was more thinking that, well, thank you, Yasna, for helping me make the connection because I totally missed that. Still uh, leaves two options, though, even if I'm right, of which it could be. But mm-hmm. so I, I got a question for Panda. So in the first mm-hmm. four chapters, what, uh, what, yes. what rate, what races do you remember have, that have been brought up? Oh my goodness! <laughs> Am I taking a quiz? Am I being? No, I, I'm just. I, I want to talk about what you remember. I don't want to bring up anything okay. that you know might. Um, yeah, so there, there is one particular race that kind of stands out to me. It's the one with wings. Moran? Yeah. They don't actually have wings, but their, oh. their, their mounts have wings. The coral. Okay, okay. So the coral. Yeah, so mm. the coral are the things that they ride on and that fly. And then the yeah. Morants are the ones that ride them and drive them, I guess. Mm-mm-mm-mm. And where are yeah, they would chitinous armor. Chitinous. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to pronounce Chitinous. Chitinous, I see. Chitinous. Yeah. Yeah. To me, they were, I, I don't know, in my mind, if it seemed to me that they were a bit bug-like, but I have no... Okay, cool. So those are the two that I remember that are not human, okay. other than, you know, like the gods and the hounds and whatever. I was hoping you'd bring up the Moranth, because they're they're the big ones of the first four chapter. I, I like the Moranth. Okay. Uh, I'll just uh, sorry. Let's go into Durgistan. There's at least four others in the first four <laughs> chapters, though. There are. Uh, oh, he says I'd like them, and that's it. Next. <laughs> if, if yeah, we could talk about the other ones if you want. Yeah, no, we'll no, do no. Another chapter. All right. So <laughs> chapter five starts with Krupp, our boy Krupp. He's in oh a dream God. sequence and a really weird dream sequence. <laughs> uh, I think that those are even just as difficult to parse as the uh, deck of dragons readings. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we find a an assassin, and it splits between the assassin and our uh, our Terugistan protagonist, I guess you could say, Krokus. Krokus breaks breaks into a be- very beautiful maiden's room, steals her stuff, and an assassin gets offed by three other assassins. And there's a bit of a sequence. Uh, our boy Krokus picks up a coin, and there was a pretty humorous scene going on there. And then he gets to uh, an end. So let's start with Krupp. 
So our Krupp is our first character. I know uh, our boy Yasna loves Krupp. So what'd you think of Krupp, Yasna? Oh, Kruppa. Uh, I know it's Krupp, but I, I say Kruppa. I'm sorry. Kruppa is my favorite character. Uh, I love him. I love how long-winded he is, how he act, he's like so full of himself. He brags about his adventures, and he kind of like makes himself out to be this like total idiot. Uh, but um, if we, you know, accept his own inner monologue, uh, I believe it's in this dream sequence, uh, but if not, it's in something I reread for the pod. Uh, he he like thinks he like is pow- you know smart enough and powerful enough to like mess with the gods. He uh, claims to be able to read to divine the future without the deck of dragons, which is as soon as you said the d- dream sequences are hard as hard to parse as the deck readings. I was like, well, they kind of are deck readings if 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 he's not full of. Sh- about being able sorry you have to bleep that uh if he's not full of it about being able to define the future without a deck reading then you know anything that he thinks about the future or anything that he like experiences in these dreams can be read as uh you know the same as readings from the deck of dragons uh and yeah i just this first sequence is really cool i like how when he uh is done feeding his uh the aspects of his self or whatever they are, uh, moldy cheese that he tells them to be grateful for, uh, and bread. He then uh, he then goes outside and points to humility, who's like hanging from a tree, and it's like <laughs> you have no place in my life. I love it. It's so great. This character is amazing. He he's obviously the comic relief of the of the uh, of the book of uh, this first book. I mean, there's comedy elsewhere, but. Uh, him and Opon definitely serve as the comic relief, I think, for the book as a whole, and more so him than Opon. So, yeah. Ash. Yeah, I just I just want to read that little bit. Um, the final aspect of Krupp to complete the dreams array of those faces facing him, which are Krupp's own. Or so you proclaim, your humility. But as everyone knows, humility has no place in Krupp's life. Remember that. So here you will stay. <laughs> I just love that. I, I was that was that so too. funny. Yeah, yeah. He, he like I love how it's set up where he just passes the figure without a glance on his first time. You're like, oh, who's that? What's what's going on? And he comes yeah, back to it. It's just it's, a, a body hanging in a tree, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just a body hanging in a tree that he pays no mind to. Um, That's wrapped. You yeah. don't even see the face. Nope. <laughs> so, what would you think of Krupp in the dream sequence specifically, Panda? So I was kind of um, suspicious about it because I was like... I mean, it says in his dream, but like we said, established, like everything Erickson puts out there, I'm like, is it really a dream? Or is he is he like in another realm or whatever? But it's it just seems like a dream. Anyway, that was just me. Uh, I don't know. I guess we'll see. Um, well, or not. I don't know how much <laughs> Erickson actually ever tells us in the end. Um, so... It was it was fun to read, and there are definitely parts where you could tell, based on how things are written, that okay, this is not the real world, right? Even aside from them saying it is a dream, um, because there's only one uh, character ca- quote character that ever actually interacts with Krupp, um, and I don't know. the The thing about Krupp is, I think he is crazy. <laughs> I, I just I think he is crazy, and 
But at the same time, you know, we find out later that his companions, at least one of them, is suspicious that Krupp is always putting on a face. There is something deeper underneath, but we don't know what that is. All we get is this long-winded person who's very silly and always refers to himself in the third person. <laughs> All right, so He's not my on? favorite. He's not my hmm. favorite, but I do appreciate the the things that he brings to the story. Uh, I, lo- I love Krupp. And yeah, he's not my favorite either. But I think in Guards of the Moon, he is the most uh, rememberable. I memorable. Guess memorable. memorable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll go with rememberable. All right. <laughs> so uh, did you like the uh, the Crocus and Assassin War uh, parts, guys? Yep. I love the I love the bit with the coin. It's it's such a fun sequence. Uh, even just reading the first time when like you don't know what's going on and stuff. It's just it's it's always fun to see those sequences where one character is just getting absurdly lucky mm-hmm. uh, and everyone's just confused as to what's actually happening. Uh, but uh, I don't like Crocus much, but this is uh, this is definitely one of his better 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 scenes. Yeah, it almost I have... like a. Oh, go ahead. Actually, you finish your thought, and then I'll go. Okay. I said it almost uh, like that scene. It feels like you could play it alongside like Benny Hill music, or like maybe a Jackie Chan scene, or uh, Stephen Chow. Because they're on the roof and it's in the dark, and <clears throat> no, no, because uh, like in those those kind of scenes, like just there's one character, and it seems like everything is either going really, really, really well, oh, okay, got really, it, really, really badly, and the, these uh, I I just always imagine like, aren't uh, who's the uh, Buster Keaton. Have you ever watched Buster Keaton stuff? No. Yeah, okay. no, there's a lot of physical comedy yeah. going on. Buster Keaton is a, a silent era film star who did comedy and like just that kind of stuff mm-hmm. happened. Like he's standing in the right place and like everything falls just. Oh, like, okay. Like, I know what you're talking about. Kind of Big Trouble in Little China. Never seen that one. Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> you got to watch it. It's great. All right. So, uh, does anyone have any other notes about chapter five? I I had something because um, Yesna, you in our notes you did put um, you did put a question which was like are there times when you're reading this when you notice obvious references or nods to like the D and D gameplay yeah, right and like if there are characters that stick out which could be playable characters I feel like for me Crocus is one of those and we haven't we haven't talked about the coin that much. But it's a huge part of Very all important. of this, right? Um, motif, the spinning coin. Exactly. Which I keep picturing the spinning top from Inception all the time in my head when I read the spinning coin. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, you know what else spins? Dice. Dice also spin. <laughs> and, and, and luck I, is attributed to them, right? Right. And so I, I don't know if I'm reaching, but... To me, it's like, are is this is the coin a way for Erickson to kind of bring in the 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 D and D role playing roots um, of Malazan, right? Anyway, and 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 I'm not sure if Crocus was one of their PCs, but I definitely read him as like a straightforward A D and D like. Because it started as AD&D before they went to GURPS with it, right? So I read him as like a straightforward AD&D thief. And in AD&D, if you were playing non-humans, you could 
be like Thief Mage and it leveled up together, that's Kruppa. I think Kruppa was probably one of their characters as well. Uh, um, Kruppa was a character. Crocus is a uh, Gardens of the Moon original. Oh, really? Um, I, I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just also going to point out that the rooftop scene uh, was, I believe, the first scene that we've seen so far that was part of the screenplay that he pitched before he turned it into a novel. I can imagine. It's very visual. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I agree, Pat. I think Alpon is a personific- uh, personification. I don't know, whatever. I think it is a representation of the dice mechanic in uh, just the luck factor introduced mm-hmm. as a god in the world. And, cool. All right, and, so- oh, just one last little thing before we move on is uh, Erickson has admitted that some scenes, or the way they turn out, uh, if a character like narrowly... Uh, doesn't die and instead does something amazing that happened in their game sometimes. Like, <laughs> just real quick. Anyway. Uh, maybe uh, Cotillion and Amanas thinking their plan is the greatest thing ever and then <laughs> finding it one page later was <laughs> Lauren's perception was very good. Maybe she, very she, rolled, she rolled a 20 and they rolled a 19. I don't know. <laughs> Which, by the way, I. I do not know very much about role-playing games. I've only recently, this is like my, I've only played two games right now. Um, I've recently started my first D&D campaign. So I'm very fresh to all of this. <laughs> I'm fairly new too. I only started last year with Ash. Oh yeah. Okay. Ash, Ash, you're a DM, so you're you're a pro. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a pro, but yeah, you definitely, you definitely see the workings of role-playing games in this series through and through and it's it's very it's it's very fun as a as an enthusiast of the of the genre to go through it and 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 see where they where they had all those fun little dnd stories that you can only get from dnd and they managed to translate into into this world and this story and i really appreciate mm-hmm. that it makes it makes a lot of these instances have very fresh feel in fantasy i think mm-hmm all right, so chapter six. Mm-hmm. All right, so we meet a great raven crone. She's flying, and she goes to, uh, yeah, crone school. She goes to uh, Baruch's place. Baruch meets Councilman Orr. Uh, I think we meet Circle Breaker, too. Yeah. And uh, Ralik Nam is at Lady Simtol's, but he doesn't kill Lady Simtol. He kills uh, Councilman Lim. We meet Anomander, Anil- Mother Rake. And uh, I think that's everything. So let's start with Crone. How, what do you guys think of Crone? I know Panda's a fan. What do you think? I love Crone. Um, so to me, this was probably the most literary scene that I've read so far um, in, in this, you know, chapters one through seven. Because Crone is interesting where it's not a person. It's a giant, great raven. And Crone also means old woman. An old woman in you know like mythology um and even in shakespeare tends to mean like wise a a wise person they tend to have some wisdom but also ravens have um like prophecy and insight uh attributes so it's just a lot of like literary play there that i really enjoyed and her speaking with baruch baruch um where she says like there are 12 ships 11 of them 11 of them are burning and the there's one that's spinning right and then Baruch is able to make the 
association that it's the the cities. I think I think it's the cities that that were free. Mm, and the free cities, and the only one left was Dirigistan. Yeah, yeah. So I I love Crone. She's also very sassy. I love that. Yeah, I, I like the her uh, comments that she was giving when she was pretending to be a dog. Yeah. <laughs> She said, "Oh yeah, there's a councilman coming, and uh, there's a demon who sits on his shoulder." And the uh, what was the, what was the demon? Ambition. Ambition. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we we meet Councilman Turban Orr, and he's immediately not a likable guy. And we also meet Circle Breaker. I love Circle Breaker. Sorry, we're still on Crone. Let's move on to Crone. Uh, Ash, uh, Justin, what do you think about Crone? Um, <clears throat> I really like Crone. I do like between the name, the way the audiobook narrator voices her, and her personality. She has, like, the perfect personality and, like, character voice for, like, a harpy. So I find myself, like, making... It's like, I, I keep picturing, like, a human face on the on the bird's body. I'm like, no, 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 she's a raven. But other than that, I love I love her character. She's so snarky. Uh, she, uh, you know, like, brings a lot of, like, sort of knowledge of the arcane into into things and conveys that in like humorous and interesting ways. Um, and yeah, I, I, I love her interaction with, uh, with Baruch in this chapter. And I like a lot of her interactions later on that we can talk about later, but yeah. Now that you said that, that remi- now I can't help, but imagine you Baba from uh, spirited away. Right. Me too. <laughs> uh, Ash, any, any thoughts about Crone? Uh, yeah. She's she's uh she's a good character. I I like most of the characters in the story. Um I'm not I'm not as infatuated with her as you guys are. I I do I do like her and appreciate the uh, what she brings though. Uh, I don't, right, I don't so really have much to say. Yeah. Circle Breaker. How is uh, sorry, Circle Breaker is like my favorite character so far. So what what would you guys think? No thoughts? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was like waiting to see who was supposed to talk first. Okay, Yasna, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I like I, I like Circle Breaker. Um, I like the way he's introduced. There's a lot of mystery to it. I like how he kind of like um, it is like like wondering whether his work for the eel is at odds with like uh, sort of his patriotism for Darugistan. Uh and uh, I don't know. He gives the he he gives flavor to like the sort of like intrigue of uh of Darugistan because he seems like he's just this city guard but he's really a spy and I, I don't know and I also just we didn't talk about it in the last chapter so I'll just say it real quickly I love Darugistan as a setting like the the contrast between the roof life and the street life and then like sort of the the government on the surface and then the shadow government it's pretty early established that it's like the mages that are really governing things and the uh the city of blue flame with the get with the gas lamps and um it's just a great setting i agree i love Jerusalem. i want to hear right. why you love circle breaker okay i i this we're going to talk about it later but i'll just say it now i love the way that uh, erickson introduces circle breaker and using the motif of the De- despot's barbican and the history of the despot's barbican contra- uh, juxtaposed juxtaposed ugh, next juxtaposed. to thank you next to uh circle breaker and his patriotism and him fighting against turban or who we already set up as you know the guy who's the, really the enemy of Darugistan. and I think Circle Breaker's great, and I think he's he's living in poverty, right? He has nothing going for him, but he has this thing that he's striving for. When he he has an ideal that he 
is working towards and he's conflicted inside about like like uh, i think yasna said uh, is he really doing the right thing is the eel really i i just i really like circle break <laughs> he's, he's my favorite character so far really i think for me circle breaker is very interesting because um the ident because he's a spy right like his identity his real identity is unknown to us like it's not revealed. Even um, I think Erickson takes the pains to tell us that even his lodging, there is no indicator of what the identity of this person is, right? And if you think about like in real world spies or not real world, but if what you see in movies and things like that, like very sterile kind of environments, very sterile uh, personality kind of thing. Um, and the other piece is that he is so dedicated. Six years guarding a you know that one gate or whatever right like that is dedication um so i do admire him i'm very curious to see how this character develops what uh role he really plays um in all of this so that that's my thought about circle breaker and i can't help but keep wondering what the name circle breaker means like what does it refer to um mm. so hopefully we find out a uh, uh, slight spoiler for the next chapter, but I also really like the scene where he's he's written a letter to the eel. He's asking for help because he's like, I think I've been I've been caught, and he he decides to rip it up. Uh, and so we're talking about agency, or I was talking about agency earlier, and the the decisions that he almost everything that he makes is because he chose to do it. Right? Uh, I I like him a lot. I I like how sparingly he's used. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't get a lot of of him talking, you don't get a lot of, uh, you don't get too much of his inner monologue, but a little more than of him talking. And uh, like, it's not like, you know, Kruppa or Crocus or um, Ralaknam or any of these char other characters we meet in Darugistan where you're like really, or Baruch, where you're really embedded in their head, you get a real sense of who the character is. Circle Breaker stays like, is like used in reserve by Erickson and that like adds to like kind of like the mystery because he keeps coming up, you know, he's clearly an important character, but you get so little of him, you know. Mm -hmm. All right. Ash, so, did did Ash have any thoughts? Uh not much. Um I actually want to draw attention to a different character. So Circle Breaker, I think you guys have sung his praises enough for me. I don't I don't really have anything <laughs> I, to, I to add. <laughs> um but I, I really like the character Relic Nom. He's my favorite mm. of the Rujistan cast. Uh, just because okay. I, I like the cold, efficient killer archetype. Uh, there's he's not he's not super deep or anything. It's just I just like him for for what he is. He you really get uh, he is he is who he seems to be. And uh, sometimes that's enough for me as in a character. I will say that I do not like the cast of characters in Darugistan as much as I like the Malazan characters. Uh, it, this this chapter for me especially is when things start to take a bit of a dip for my enjoyment, but it's still it's still really good. I'm the opposite, uh, at least in yeah, this same. book. Uh, in in the later books, I prefer the Malazan characters, but in this book, uh, especially my first time through, these are the characters that I latched onto and I was really uh, interested in following. I yeah, that's interesting. Why? What? What attracted you to these characters more for both of you, Yasa and Huron? I, I liked their motivations, and I liked testing out their motivations more than the stuff in the Empire. And yeah, but, yeah. It felt like, like I said, I feel like they, they were actually doing things, whereas the characters in the Empire were kind of, things were being done to them. Okay. Right. Yeah. 
I, I, uh, they're, they're more relatable too. Like, uh, y you know, I end up relating to the Malazan characters, but at first, you know, they're all like thinking one thing, saying another, I can only hear the thoughts of one of them at one time. Uh, and like the way they interact with each other, they're so on guard with each other and you don't really like get to know them in that first part, you know, whereas like the Darugistan characters, like it kind of opens up a lot of who they are right away and gives you things to relate to with the different characters. And, um, uh, and also like the, what's happening, you know, the, the action of the plot is more apparent. So like, you're kind of like, you know, it's, it's a lot simpler to follow Crocus and his chase on the rooftops and or follow like, you know, Ralik Nam and his doings than it is to like keep track of what the hell's going on at the siege of sale of siege of pale. Uh, and, <laughs> It, you know, it did, it's not as, like, overloady. Darugistan, like, kind of, like, steps back from that, like, let's overload you with all of this stuff happening. I don't know. I agree okay. completely. Yeah, there's fewer things to follow, and it's easier. Gotcha. Uh, I, I think with... Realized... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, with Ralik Nam, to, to Ash's point, like, when you see him, you know he's an assassin. <laughs> like, that's how he's being described. And... There is that scene where I don't actually remember if it's exactly in this chapter, um, but where Marilio is like, "Can you can you be less obvious?" Except for <laughs> Ralik Nam, his intention was to be as overtly an assassin as possible. Yeah, because <laughs> so I got like a chuckle. That's the next chapter. Yeah, um, I, I, I feel like that. Uh, oh, I, I was just gonna say, I feel like that might be like. Erickson making fun of either himself or ICE uh, for playing like the most stereotypical assassin that they could ever play at the table. Like that's kind of what it felt like to me is like the DM mocking the player who brought like that. the most stereotypical assassin. <laughs> uh, I just realized we haven't talked about Rake. No. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> He's pretty important. There's so many characters. <laughs> yeah. So we're first introduced to Rake at Pale and he is a badass, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like he just he dispatches everybody, and then we meet him with Baruch, and his entrance is like one of the coolest things I've ever read. Uh, so what what what'd you think of uh, uh Rake Benda? Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, what'd you think of Rake Benda? Me. Um. <laughs> so I think he's so mysterious, and like one of the first things that we learn about him is that he's he's immortal, right? Like, and um. The thing about Rake, I think, is that, yes, he's very powerful. Yes, he's um, there's a lot of, like, respect and mysticism around him. Like, he's a legend. But he's also very uh, caring. Like, when he talks about the residents on Moonspawn, Moon's Spawn, it's very difficult to say, actually. Um, and he was saying that, like, all of his fighting fighting people were off with Kaladin. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm just watching here and sneeze. Um and like the people that were left were the elderly and children, basically. And he he chose, he made the decision to pull back and let the Empire have pale because he needed to save his people. He's also and, ruthless though, right? He, he mean, went after, he went after those wizards pretty that is <laughs> pretty true hard. right but, but he went, oh go ahead he, 
he went after the wizards because they abandoned Pale oh, and yeah. left only him defending it, which means that entire battle, aside from the like interpolitics of the Malazans, uh, it was just Anamander one guy, versus the second army, the right. cadre, and on top of their cadre, three high mages. Right. And and it was or, still or like, that, right? you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, four. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, I have a question for Ash. Yep. So, Ash, in the primer, you had said like there's a mountain that shoots lasers. Are were you <laughs> referring to Moon Spawn? Uh, I'm not answering that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I always assumed he was referring to Moon Spawn when he said that. But now that you're now that you're saying that, I'm like, wait, but it it was really Rake that was shooting the lasers, so I don't know. Well, I don't yeah. know if Rake was. I probably have to reread that scene because. I don't actually know what was happening in terms of the the action. I knew that things were it's falling very from. Confusing. Yeah, it is. I knew I things were that. falling. I've read it four times. <laughs> Ash, it, it, that's that's on purpose, I think. Yeah. Um. So just just what happened there? Uh, Rake was just basically conjuring magic at the Malazans. Um. But basically, uh, read and find out. And if you, uh, yeah, if you're paying, yeah. Just, just read and find out, and it'll be good. <laughs> I think. Can, can I ask a question? Yeah. Go ahead. Is it read and find out in this book, or you mean just in the series? Series. Okay. Cool. You learn a little, little bit more in this book too, but yeah, in the series mostly. Mm -hmm. it, Got it. Yeah, I guess we give it a short spoiler. Yeah, you don't actually find out what happens at Pale completely in this book. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm okay with that. Um, should shall we go on to chapter seven? Uh, yeah. just, I, I just have a few thoughts about Anamander Rake. Um, so he is, to me, uh, first of all, when I read the series at first, a, I thought he was an edgelord. And <laughs> to be fair, he is a super edgy character on paper. But um, yeah, as, as Panda says, like even, even in the start, when you know very little about him, he has, he has a lot of compassion and he, ha he, has, he has big, deep feelings that he needs to express. Yeah. <laughs> um, <sighs> He is he is one of the more interesting characters in this series, in my opinion. Uh, I'm interested that you you guys are noticing his compassion. I I was more drawn to his ruthlessness because <laughs> he has he has a really scary sword, right? Like Baruch yes. is frightened of this thing. Like mm -hmm. he says, "Hey, I want these wizards, and you need to give them to me." And Baruch's like, "Uh, are you going to use that sword?" Like, I think I'll give you their heads so they don't have to use that sword. So we don't know what's up with the sword. We just know it's scary, right? No. And Anamander right. says to him, you have too much mercy. Right, but but why but why does he say that? It's because they abandoned their their freaking city and let their city be conquered by the Malazans to try to and, save And ends. And we haven't deserve it. We don't deserve it. <laughs> we haven't even talked about what happened after the battle. Right for pale, where there was an hour of slaughter. That was like the quote unquote reward, I guess, for the the Empire soldiers. Like that was the Morant. Yeah. Oh, the Morant. Um, that was very difficult to read. Even though you don't get a whole ton of details, like it's not as graphic as probably what George R. R. Martin writes in his books, which I've never read. So. I don't know, but I'm making assumptions. Um, even though you don't get like that much graphic detail, just um, 
the way that you get enough so that you can imagine what it's like, what it could have been like, that to me was very powerful. Yes, Ash. Yeah, um, these two things, in in my opinion, are are great examples of Erickson showing early on the horrors of eye-for-an-eye justice. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically, the Maranth did what they did because they had calculated to, to the exact person how many of their own had died because of pale. Mm. And so they wanted retribution for that. But obviously that's, that's horrifying. They had an hour of slaughter in the city. That's, as you said, it's, it's, it's tough to read mm-hmm. and think about. And, and Amanda Rake, he's, hmm? I don't think we'd learn that until a later chapter. That, uh, no, no, we, we knew that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's mentioned in the, in the, when they have a conversation about it. Um, Apologies. But uh, yeah, you also have Animander, who is uh, he's his sword means business, man. <laughs> um, and death is, in his opinion, too good for these. Uh, mere mere death is too good for these these wizards. Um, traitors. Yeah, these traitors. All right, we should so... hit chapter seven. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hit chapter seven. We're, we're running out of time. <laughs> so uh, we got another dream by Krupp. Krupp means, uh, meets Kirul. Uh, we got another scene with Circle Breaker. Uh, Lady Simtol talking to Orr. Marilio. Marilio's doing his thing. I like Marilio. Uh, Crocus wants to get his stuff back so he can give it back to the beautiful maiden. Um, yeah, <laughs> the scene with Orr, or sorry, the scene where Ralek's walking through the streets and Marilio sees him. And then uh, Marilio and Ralek are planning something. And finally, it's scene with Baruch. So, chapter seven, final one of book two. What'd you think? Ashvan? <clears throat> This is where things start to get good in Darugistan. Um, There are many things that there are many balls that are set in motion by Erickson, and uh, you don't you don't get any of the Malazan Malazans in this in this book of the of Gardens of the Moon. Um, so you you kind of left wondering where they where they fit into all this. Uh, but this is this is an excellent final chapter of setup before um, the main conflict between. The people of Drugistan and the Malazans starts for the for the book. Um, I just want to draw the attention to uh, Crocus and his hilariously uh, teenage angst about <laughs> robbing Lady, uh, robbing um, what's her face, uh, the Lady, Dar- yeah, the wonderful Lady Darl. Um, that like, if 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 you haven't gone through a stage in your life where you you thought like Crocus does um, about things, then I don't know what to tell you, but that was... I, I envy you. Yeah, he, <laughs> he's so cringy and it's so relatable. It's hilarious. <laughs> it, it is, but also like, you know, a, a decade maybe, a, a decade and a half since I've ever thought anything like that. So it's like... <laughs> very removed from relatability as it goes farther back in time. And every time I read the sequence where he's talking about how he violated the lady doll because he violated her privacy and yeah, tantamount to rape. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I hate Crocus more every time I read that scene. Like, and, yeah. and, I, and I kind of like him in other scenes, like, you know, later on, but uh, this scene is just devastating for, for me liking Crocus. I don't like it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, why? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's kind of right, though. I mean, he invi- invaded her privacy in the most intimate part of her life. You saw her naked. I mean, she could, 
yeah, never mind. <laughs> I mean, the way that it was described was very effective, right? Because all her suitors, all these like very high power, high powered, rich men could did not have access to her room, and but he, he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was, I think, uh, a very good way of showing what he meant by that he basically assaulted her because that was her privacy. That was her haven. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's not entirely wrong, but it's just so funny how melodramatic he is about it. He is very melodramatic, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. 17-year-old like, yeah. and... Like a lot of teenagers, he like he he sort of gets it, but he also is he's thinking about this way in a in a crazy light, basically. And all of his best friends who are middle aged men are like, "Oh, he's smitten." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why are all his best friends? Yeah, doesn't he have any friends at his own age? Like, <laughs> he Sorry. he's supposed to. Um, he would have if he stayed on the path that his father wanted him to go down, his right? Uncle. But he chose that, or his uncle. Um, but he chose to be a thief. Yeah. So I, I love his. But friends. hopefully, it's just I, a I love, mm, Oh, sorry. Uh, they just wanted better for him. Mm-hmm. I, I like Marilly almost at the group, actually. <laughs> He's a ladies' man. See, like I usually hate characters like that, and I, I'm I'm being completely serious. I just don't like you know womanizers as ladies' men, but I really like Marilio. Especially uh, when Ralak is talking about Merlio, and he's like, "Well, usually he goes after widows because he doesn't like the uh, the morale." Oh yeah, that's true. And is, uh, are you is he a womanizer? Or is he just a hoe? He he's just a hoe. <laughs> he's not a womanizer. Yeah, but he he does he does. I think he uses women, right? But they they get something out of it too. So I don't know. He's a very complex character, and I like. It him. seems like it seems like in most cases, uh, he's respectful towards them, he is. even while he's. Yeah. He's, you he's know, not a woman. Being a player. I shouldn't have said that. But he's definitely a player. And he gets around. And, and he's he's also a nice guy. I, I like him a lot. Yeah, he right. has some sort of moral compass. I think we should get on to our uh, other questions. Because we, we've been talking <laughs> <all the> time. <laughs> I told yep. you this was going to be hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Does someone else want to take the lead and talk about something they want to? Or shall I just go sure. through the questions? I, I can... I can kind of give it a try because I've been kind of working some of this into our existing discussion. Mm. Um, but uh, let's get to some of the like listener questions. Um, so Red Army Ian, he asked, like, which characters do you find yourself drawn to at the start of the book? I think we kind of answered this already, right? We've got Krupp for some of us, Tattersale. Um, Shall we just go around and tell which one we've liked so much? the most so far yeah yeah mine was definitely circle breaker yasa what was that sorry <laughs> uh what character do you find yourself most drawn to uh krupp <laughs> kruppa uh definitely ash i'm gonna say the boring answer right here and say piran <laughs> okay yeah i don't and... think it's boring i think that that one's pretty good um i have you know tattersail and crone um i can't remember does talk the younger talk. He shows up, yeah. Yeah. Very, very briefly. Very mm-hmm. briefly, but I like him. I like that Tattersail is. Uh, I love Tattersail, and and she's probably my favorite on the Malazan side. But I loved the first time reading it, especially because I hadn't read a lot of fantasy besides Wheel of Time. I loved that she's thick, and she's the romantic <laughs> female lead, and dudes like her because, uh, <laughs> like, 
Matt in the Wheel of Time is like a chubby chaser, but it's like always like non-entities. Like it's like the maid or like whatever. And then he marries the skinny chick. So like, I was just like, whoa, cool, awesome. There's like, you know, some range here. People aren't all like, you know, supermodels for some reason. Erickson writes a lot of voluptuous women. <laughs> uh, spoilers for Wheel of Time, by the way. <laughs> oh, sorry. Which I, I didn't have think that not was read. Too severe a spoiler, but it's not a big spoiler. Um, Aerodendus, oh. the bridge. Oh, go. Wait, sorry, wait, go wait. Ahead. Before we move on, I did want to also give a shout out to Whiskey Jack. Um, he is a pretty complex character, and Dujek. Those two, I really enjoy. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Aerodandis, the bridge burners are an obvious knockoff of the Black Company. Did that make it easier or harder to read? And if you haven't read the Black Company, uh, there are so many characters who should we pay attention to most of the why. So let's start with the, the bridge burner question. Uh, I hadn't read the Black Company before Malazan, so no. Uh, it, there are definitely obvious similarities, but uh, Panda, you just recently read the Black Company. What do you think? I did. So upon you and um, Ash's recommendation to read Black Company before starting Malazan, Malazan. I did. Um, I only read the first book, though. So um, I can see the parallels. Um, I think mostly it's just the, the the camaraderie that comes with having gone through such terrible things together. Um, you have respect. You you watch out for each other. You're like family. One of my favorite tropes is found family. So I personally really enjoy these aspects. Um, but I think for for Erickson, he he actually um, I think writes these characters in more depth because partially I think part of the reason is because in the Black Company you only get one person's point of view, whereas here we get many points of view. <laughs> it's omniscient. We get many um, characters' thoughts. So I think for me, I prefer Malazan. Um, and I I would say. Rather than knockoff, inspired by the Black Company. There's a lot yeah. of, at least from the first two books of the Black Company and the first two and a half books of Malazan, you know, maybe there's a difference. Maybe if I finish Black Company and finish Malazan, I'll have a different opinion. But from first two and a half, first two, uh, they are, the naming conventions are obvious. Like, it's obviously copied. Like, they don't use their real names in the Bridge Burners or in the Malazan armies. They make up a name when they enlist. And, and like, you know, themes of camaraderie. And they're, like, frontline soldiers. And, it's sol you know, it's fantasy for the frontline soldiers. Those things are all true. But the Black Company are a bunch of mercenaries. And the Malazans are Imperial soldiers. And the morality of that and the types of characters that you get are very different, like, Kalam, or not Kalam, Quickbin is a very different character from like Goblin and One Eye. So mm -hmm. I'd say it takes inspiration from not like a knockoff or a ripoff, but anyway. I agree. Uh, I think knowing Aerodendus, he, he, he chose knockoff very intentionally. So don't, don't think that <laughs> yeah. too much. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely but, trying to provoke us here. But also to, to really answer his question, like, did that make it easier or harder to read? I mean, I think it probably did make it easier um, for me subconsciously, um, but it's not like that big of an impact, I think, for me. Um, as far as to who to keep an eye on, um, I think everybody that we spoke about in depth uh, earlier covers that, right? Yeah, yeah, I think we can, we've answered that. I like Nom, Aurelia, Crocus, uh, Perrin. 
Tatar sale, etc. All right. So Lady Sweden says, question for a newbie. So really just Panda, right? Uh, was the beginning of Gardens of the Mood what you expected? Was it easier or more difficult to read than what you expected? And did it help to read the Black Company first, similarities and dif differences in style? Yeah, so um, no, the beginning of Gardens of the Moon was not what I was expecting. So I knew going in that I was going to be thrown into action, um, but I didn't know exactly what to expect. Um, and I think it was actually, it is easier to read than I expected because the pacing is really good um and the sentences are very readable now i specifically chose these words sentences are readable <laughs> what is difficult is keeping track and understanding all the clues and the details that are given within each of those sentences um and pulling the the puzzle pieces together and i think it, it did help in that i read the black company first because the black company was way less exciting. <laughs> um, but structure wise, it was similar. And themes wise, I think there's some similarity that can be drawn, at least from the, you know, first third that I've read of gardens. Um, and we've already talked the talked about the camaraderie. I'm also a person who loves the show MASH. So I don't know if this helps listeners get a better sense of like what I like, but that's what I like. Um, the difference in style is that Erickson provides more details um, and he writes a more complicated plot, in my opinion, at least compared to the first book of The Black Company. I haven't read the rest, so I don't know. Um, there's more depth and substance to Gardens. And I, I also mentioned that because we get omniscient point of view in Gardens, it's just more rich. It's a richer ex reading experience than The Black Company. Ash, did you have your hand up? Yes. Um, I just want to make one small point. I think the Black Company did an excellent thing in introducing the type of soldier camaraderie into the genre that you hadn't really seen before. And I think that Erickson does it, but better. That's my hot take of the episode, everybody. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. All right. Uh, other question by uh, Lady Sweden. What was the coolest part of chapters one through seven? Uh, she wants to know what we think. So I, I would go with the the attack on Pale. Yeah, 100% agreed. It's so cool. Same. Devastating, but epic. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, everyone yeah, yeah, yeah. Pale? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, we've kind of already gone through Yasta's prompts. Uh, what, so Ash asked, what initial opinions do you have of Malazan Empire and uh, major players within? What pros and cons of the Empire do you see right now? Um, I, I think I've already gone... In, and talked about what I feel about what the Empire does to its people, and especially the soldiers, and how they kind of just become you know, pawns of the Empire itself. And even even the higher players, they, they feel like uh, they're backed into corners. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think that the Empire is evil or good. I just think it's an Empire, and Empire's Empire. <laughs> Empire's will Empire. Um, <laughs> I My thought here is that this one... This question is quite tough for me to answer. Um, and it is also earlier on in the book, so I'm not quite yeah, sure yet. Hmm? Is it just hard to make that after four chapters with the uh, Malazans? Yeah. Um, but there was a specific uh, part that stood out to me, and this is Ganos doing his like internal monologue. And he, he asked himself, like, was the Empire the Empress? Or was it something else? A legacy, an ambition, a vision at the far end of peace and wealth for all? 
or was it a beast that could not cease devouring? And I think those those are excellent questions that Erickson probably really wants his readers to just examine and think about, like, what are your thoughts? What are your take on what an empire is? Yeah, I don't I don't think this first book really uh, shows us a good any good examples of the pros, uh, the pros rather than the cons of the empire. Uh, this book kind of casts the empire, even though you identify with the imp- with imperial citizens and soldiers uh, at various points through this book. This book kind of casts the empire in an antagonistic light, which, like, I feel like as the series goes on, there's more like give and take, and pros and cons can be like identified more easily. Like, we don't see like what we don't see in this book what the empire looks like at home too much, and like how it benefits its citizens. Uh, we just see, like, the first time we see citizens of the Empire in Imperial territory, they're being slaughtered by Hounds of Shadow. And then we, you know, we see them making war to conquer on Genobacchus, but we don't see, like, what a Genobacchus controlled by the Empire would look like. So there's no room to answer this question in this first book, at least from these first seven chapters. I, I mostly agree. And I, I think, <laughs> so yeah, the, the Empire does not look good right now. And which is hard to do because a lot of the characters that we're following are pawns of the empire and uh, they work for the empire. And so I think initially I would, I was, you know, put off by that. And like, why would, why would I, you know, want to follow these characters? They're doing these terrible things or they're, they're working for this terrible machine, but you know, I like these guys. I, I want them to succeed, but at the same time, what they're doing is not really great. Right. And I think that's, that's on purpose. And I think that's really applicable to modern day politics. Yeah, so all this is excellent thoughts, and why I did the prompt in the first place is not so much to get people's definitive opinions, and none of you have given a definitive opinion, on the Empire as of yet. It's just, I'm probably going to be asking this question throughout the series, because <laughs> for me, I think it's the central level two question of 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 the series is, what what does the Empire mean? What is is it worth it? Is it worth all this death and suffering that it causes? And what are your general thoughts on it? And that is a question that I asked myself many times throughout my first read through. And after every book, my opinion on the Empire was different and it had evolved in some way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Nice. The, the, I, I was thinking this question, like, I have it, more answers to this question, but I can't answer them from chapters one through seven. <laughs> yeah. Mm hmm. That's a good um, overarching question for the series. A, a lot of these other prompts we've already spoken about, so I want you guys to bring up one that you feel like we haven't covered enough. And so I'll, I'll do mine first. And I, I want to talk about the poems before each chapter. And I know a lot of people skip these, but I think uh, they're really beautiful poetry. And before this episode, we're going to put up uh, Ashman reading the original, uh, the one at the be- very beginning of the book. And especially that one, I think, is tells the story of the entire book of the fallen in a way that will make sense but each it was was there any poems that stood out to you or were there any I'm for me honestly honest. yeah not not this not so far <laughs> um yeah i'm gonna be honest i read the poems and sometimes I'm like oh i think i understand and then i forget about it so i feel <laughs> like the poems are probably more meaningful upon rereading, upon 
like maybe two, three, five, ten. You read? I don't know. I I'm not that into poetry in general. So to me, it, yeah, it's harder for me to appreciate the what he's trying to convey with the poems. I get you. Well, I want um, to give an example. Oh, sorry. Uh, the, the chapter one's poem is about a soldier and a, uh, soldiers being sent off to war and coming back and being changed. Uh, and that's really a lot of what chapter one is about. And after reading chapter one, if somebody's, you know, if they're, if they're interested, I think they should go back and read the, uh, the poems after they're finished and they can make the, the connections. Sorry, yes, sir. I was going to say, if you read the poem right after you read the chapter, supposedly each poem explains what's going to happen in the chapter. Uh, but I will also say that I appreciate it more when we get like a quotation from Gothos's Folly or a quotation from like a history book written by an imperial historian or something like that uh, uh, with like political commentary on the events of the empire. And uh, it's, it's a lot easier to parse that out and remember like the tone and the and the meaning of it than than to like try to like figure out like oh what's the rhythm and meter of this poem and and what is it saying and all of that for me <laughs> so I I like the epigraphs better when they're not poems even though I like the poems too. Uh yeah I'll say that uh a, a lot of these uh, poems and epigraphs that come before the chapters will different parts of them will come up later on like Gothos Fall is one that comes up quite a bit. Or uh, okay. I think even in chapters one through seven, two of them were written by Felicin, and it was called, uh, I forgot, it was something about Rise of Shadow or something like that. Okay. So does anyone else have a prompt they want to bring up or something else? Yes. Um, I like the prompt of the favorite lines. I went through the chapters just before doing this really quick and just found a few that I really like. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll share. I'll share a few. <laughs> Taking up the sword is the last act of desperate men. That is a very nice play on Isaac Asimov's quote from Foundation. Violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Um, another one that I thought really summed up the uh, was a good encapsulation of chapter two. In some military headquarters back in the empire's capital of Unta, 3,000 leagues distant, an anonymous aide would paint a red stroke across the red army on the active list, then write in fine script behind beside it. Pale, late winter, the 1,163rd year of burned sleep. Thus would the deal of death of 9,000 men and women be noted, and then forgotten. And then just last, Krupp's description of a coin. An item that passes without provenance, pursued by many who thirst for its cold kiss, on which life and all that lay within life is often gambled. Alone, a beggar's crown. In great numbers, a king's folly. Weighted with ruin, yet blood washes from it beneath the lightest rain, and to the next no hint of its cost. It is as it is, says Group. Worthless, but th for those who insist otherwise. Wonderful. I'll share mine next. <laughs> uh, this is Krupp, and he's talking to himself in his dream, uh, talking to many of himself. Uh, all deceit is born in the mind, and there it is nurtured while virtues starve. Uh, another one with uh, Topper and Peron. Uh, uh, Topper says, words are like coin. It pays to hoard. And Peron said, uh, until you die on a bed of gold. Yeah. And finally, finally uh, this one's not actually in the Book of the Fallen. This is in the Ford. And uh, Erickson says, ambition is not a dirty word. Piss on compromise. Go for the throat. Love that one. <laughs> yes, uh, do you yeah. have any? Uh, I don't, though I did highlight the one that Ashamon first read, intending to read it for just such a section. <laughs> so 
Um, and, we, and we get to do it twice, because I'm pretty sure that quote almost word for word comes up again at least once in the series. So Nice. The one about the sword. I don't think that counts as a spoiler. <laughs> All right, well, that has been the first discussion of the first seven chapters of Gardens of the Moon. Uh, again, if you guys have any criticisms or helpful things, anything, really, we're welcome to come uh, join us on the Discord. That's where we are. Don't bother with Reddit. Uh, we have a Twitter, which Panda handles, so check her out there, too. Um, so goodbye, everybody. Thanks, Thank you for Bye-bye. Music is Galactic Damages by Jingle Punks.